Yeah, fashion is an interesting place. It's an interesting world. If you look beyond the stereotypes, it is nothing like what it is on TV. It is nothing like what it is in movies. I myself love The Devil Wears Prada. That is not what it's like to work in magazines. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a touch of truth, but those fictional narratives have shaped so much of what people think is fashion's reality. Welcome to the Mass Thoughts Up podcast. My name is Michelle Mudar. This is a podcast for Africa's opportunity seekers, problem solvers, future shapers, world builders, and entrepreneurs. This podcast is meant to be a platform to encourage, empower, and educate young people in Africa on entrepreneurship, startups, and business. In this week's episode, um, we speak to Mudupi, who's a really, really um, thoughtful person around uh, media, content, um, social media, as well as the platforms that we use to distribute the content that we make, um, the future for creators, and also the opportunities um, that people have to create platforms, um, but also to scale the sort of work that they're doing around content. Um, hope you keep listening. Um, please keep sharing. It's always amazing to have feedback and really engage a lot more uh, around the work that we're doing. So thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> I think we'll take it. Okay. So um, just to get... Just okay. to get started, um, we've tried to get started with this a number of times. Um, just to get started, what would you say is your origin story? You know, uh, where does your story begin? Hmm, my origin story in media? In life. Or in life. Oof, wow, okay. <laughs> it's It's got a few twists and turns there. Um, so... I grew up in Lesotho, uh, which was very interesting. Um, I have never, ever had an experience, at least not that I remember, where I wasn't the foreigner. It has been my identity for ages and ages and ages. And there were, of course, difficult things about it, but it was also something that I think shaped me in a great way and made me interested and curious in the rest of the world um, and was probably my origin, yeah. So we we lived in Maseru. My dad is a doctor and he um, got a job with the government hospital there. We went to school in Ladybrand for a while. We were crossing the border every day to go to school. Um, I haven't figured out yet like some cool deeper meaning to that <laughs> I will mine it I, I, I know it's in there and I will mine that out um, yeah we went to primary school in the free state I went to high school in the eastern Cape um, and then moved to Cape Town to study fashion design if you can believe it my Nigerian parents allowed me to study fashion design um, and I, I picked fashion out of many design disciplines that I was interested in while I was young because I cycled through interiors. I cycled through a very short um, interest in architecture. Um, 
And I stuck with fashion because it was the only thing that never bored me. I think there were just so many stories to tell. Um, there was always more to uncover. There was always another question to ask, for me anyway. Um, and when I went to school, if you wanted to work in fashion, you didn't have too many options in terms of what to study. You were going to study fashion design or you were going to study retail management or I think one or two other options. Everything else, any other specialties, any other niches are short courses and they only exist now. They didn't exist when I was in first year. Um, so I studied fashion design and became interested or became introduced to pretty much all the other aspects of the industry when um, I interned at Fashion Week. Sorry, I'm going to redo that because my sister just opened a door. No, um, it's okay. okay. Please keep going. That's it. It's okay. Please keep going. Okay. Um, so I, when I studied, I chose to study fashion design and... Sorry, she's just moving something else, so I'm just going to wait till she's done. <laughs> okay, she's done. Um, okay, so I studied fashion design, and I was interested in design as a career, but I wanted to do it the safe way. I wanted to graduate and then work my way up at Willie's, hopefully, and gain some business experience, understand how buying worked and everything before I struck out on my own. But in my first year, I got an internship at African Fashion International. It was only about a week long. Um, they were in town from their Joburg office. They were in Cape Town, set up at the CTICC to set up and put on Cape Town Fashion Week. And I got to work for them that week and worked my butt off. I was a runner. I put everyone's little lanyards, those access tags that everybody wants so badly, I put them on their lanyards. I just did any any tiny job that they would let me have. And actually the woman who was my supervisor then, which is now 10 years ago, wow, I'm old, um, is still someone I'm in touch with today. In fact, we have a meeting this weekend about something very exciting. Uh, but yeah, she gave me my first internship and she gave me my first reference letter and those really changed things for me. The reference letter helped me get my first jobs, but that internship exposed me to the skeleton of the industry. I saw so many things up close that I only would have known about in theory up until that point. It was like, okay, fashion shows, a whole fashion week. Someone's got to put that on. Somebody's got to produce that, right? But that was all I knew. I didn't know how that happened until I got that internship. I met stylists. I met models, makeup artists. I met all of these different people involved in this world of fashion. And I got this up-close look at their jobs. And very quickly, design started to look like it was not going to be enough anymore. Um, and yeah, I started to struggle with design as well as like having all of those questions and the rest of that world opened up for me at that internship. I really started to struggle with design and the subjectivity of the way that you study it. Because if you study, I don't know, something more objective and plain or simple or direct, you, you, can, you can focus on things where one plus one always equals two. 
Um, whereas in design, one plus one equals whatever your lecturer says it is. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a difficult time for me. Um, I had a near breakdown at the beginning of third year on a project that was going so well, and then I choked. Um, and I really started to um, nurture my other interests and look a little further into my other curiosities in this world. Because by that time, by the time I was wrapping up, I knew I wanted to be in this world of fashion. I wasn't so sure I wanted to be in it as a designer. And I thought, let me hop around for a bit. Let me go to different roles. Let me intern here, intern there, learn as much as I can. And I will see about design in a few years. It'll give me time to save. It'll um, give me a handle on all of these other parts of the business because not knowing anything beyond the design is how a lot of fashion designers who go independent very early, it's how they fail. Um, so let me see what else I can learn. And I started out in media because it came pretty naturally to me to write. English was one of my favorite subjects. I loved expressing myself through words. I loved connecting with other people's work through words. I loved reading about the industry. Reading was how I did most of my learning about the industry. It wasn't really fashion shows. There weren't a whole lot of video interviews back then. That's only become a thing a few years later. Um, yeah, I just found my curiosities around media and around writing growing the strongest. And I found my talents and skills there were the things that came the, the most naturally to me. And also that seemed to be where opportunity was opening up. So that was the direction I went. And I was supposed to play around in content and then try and play around with something else. But I never left. That's so and interesting. Like, you, you have such a, a, a very um, sort of deeply entrenched journey through fashion. Um, and I think one of yes. the misconceptions, and I think um, maybe this is just my ignorance, but I think most people have, is, you know, when someone studies fashion, it's either they're going to be a designer, um, or sort of make mm -hmm. the clothes, or... Uh, I'm not sure anything else, um, which is the unfortunate misconception. Yeah. And sort of the way I got introduced... It's, I don't know that it's an unfortunate misconception, really. Um, the degree, is the degree, the diploma, the qualification, it's called fashion design. I don't think you're wrong to assume that that's what people are going to do with it. It's just that a lot of people who want to work in this industry don't really see any other way in because there aren't too many specialties. Unless you're going to go to cosmetology school, and become um, a hairstylist or a makeup artist or something else that is a very specific um, trade or a very specific skill set like that. If you want to work in fashion, it's very confusing to ask yourself what to study other than to study design. Um, but I'll also just say now, because I don't think we're going to come back to this corner of it in the conversation, I'll say it now, that... If you want to work in fashion, but your thing is numbers, please, please go study numbers. Please go be an accountant because fashion needs accountants. Fashion uses accountants every day. There's an accounting department at Woolworths, at Edgar's, at um, David Lale, even, I'm sure. 
just fashion is a business. And so whatever your skill is, however it applies to business, you can use that to work in fashion if that's the world you want to be in. Yeah. Why do you think people don't see um, it that way? I think um, the, in recent years, it's sort of being opening up where you're starting to see it more as a business and how vast the economy around fashion is. Why do you think there wasn't that sort of understanding or consciousness around that before? I think there's two layers to it. I think there is first the idea of fashion design in its history before it could become really a business or an industry, before mass production, before fast fashion. Um, it was really seen as a trade and a skill that you learned and as a trade and a skill that had limits. So it was really just going to be you being a tailor, I guess. And if you, I don't know, struck gold by some incredible chance, then you could build something really big out of it and become a household name. And so people saw it as something risky and lowly, I guess. Uh, so that's one layer of it. And then the other layer of it, I believe, is that fashion is seen as a women's interest and making it is seen as women's jobs, which is hilarious to me because most fashion executives, at least within the world of European luxury, are men. It's men at the top. Um, but because fashion is associated with women, so many things that are associated with women are not taken seriously. Mm. Like on, on any level, in any kind of... I don't know, any way that you look at it, if it's associated with women, people find a reason not to take it seriously. Uh, so there is that to it as well. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of opportunities in it. Um, I believe fashion is a special industry because from manufacturing level all the way to like executive leadership, women's presence is felt. Fashion hires women. And I know that that's something that people have seen before as a reason not to get involved in it or a reason to mock it or degrade it or not take it seriously or call it frivolous. But that's economic empowerment for women. Fashion employs more women throughout its supply chain than most industries do, at least than, than most industries do visibly. Um, so between that and between its labor intensivity, I think I said that right. I hope I said that right. I think um, it's fine. But yeah, fashion is labor intensive. <laughs> fashion is labor intensive. And so it provides a lot of jobs through that. Um, I forget what the piece of legislation is, but the government has actually just passed something to kind of support the fashion industry, the clothing and textiles and shoes and accessories manufacturing industry in the country because they believe that it's an industry like the auto industry, like a few other industries that they've passed similar legislation for, that is too important to job creation and to economic prosperity to kind of be left to the whims of private dealers, of the private market, of private companies. They want to kind of support it with regulation that helps it grow uh, which, as an industry, we've heard before, and we really hope that execution works out this time. Um, 
Yeah, fashion is an interesting place. It's an interesting world. If you look beyond the stereotypes, it is nothing like what it is on TV. It is nothing like what it is in movies. I myself love The Devil Wears Prada. That is not what it's like to work in magazines. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a touch of truth, but those fictional narratives have shaped so much of what people think is fashion's reality. And I think if they were curious and looked beyond what's immediately available, they'd find some interesting things to do, um, some interesting impact to make. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about what you just said around um, the devil is Prada, which was sort of a lot of (laughs) people's sort of inspiration um, at a certain point. And I think about the impact that COVID-19 and the lockdown has had on South African publications that focus on sort of fashion or even just women's issues. Um, So um, a few of these magazines Mm. shut down and the impact that's going to have sort of rolling off as well. Um, How do you think of just um, what the landscape looks like now in terms of um, whether that's print um, or just media in general um, around fashion as Mm. well as just women's issues? Um. Wow, I think the landscape has been and is still being bulldozed, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think there are things with strong enough foundations, long enough legacies that they are still standing. They are still able to leverage that history and that strong economic foundation uh, to use that as kind of funding for the future and experiment and try to see what form they will take to not just survive, but to thrive in whatever landscape we find ourselves in later. Um, I think that a lot of people believe that it was influencers who completely changed the landscape and they had such incredible impact. Social media and the advent of content creators on social media, leveraging social media to build audiences and to eventually some of them build businesses really did change things in um, in certain corners of media, fashion especially, and fashion very visibly. Uh, but I really think that the landscape began to shift before influencers came along, um, when Facebook and Google were setting up the very foundations of their advertising businesses and their advertising networks. The Facebook-Google online advertising duopoly I believe, has had more impact on the media business than or the media business in fashion than influencers, uh, than content creators and the marketing money that has flown, that has kind of moved toward them. I really think that the it was the decimation of the advertising model that shook all of media, that really shook fashion and women's interest media even more. Um, I think I first really felt an earthquake in that in 2018. Um, I don't know if you remember that, like, it was in two waves, I think, that year. But there was a two-week period. I remember just, like, losing my mind because I was watching Huffington Post was firing people, Refinery29 was firing people, BuzzFeed was firing people, and it was just... It was this great unfolding. I think that's also when Mike closed, Um, or rather Mike, yeah, it shut down for a while, but then it was purchased and now they're back online again, I think. Um, 
But yeah, it was this great unfurling of the new media model of the online digital native web-first media platforms that were supposed to save media. Um, and it was the beginning of the, wasn't the beginning of it, it was the final kind of iteration of cracks and problems in the business model that had only been patched up until that point and had been badly patched and were starting to really crumble. And so, yeah, we are now, I think the business has already learned a lot from that period. Um, we're seeing something now that kind of mirrors it with COVID-19, with um, everybody locking up their marketing budgets. So advertising dollars have disappeared. As my uncle put it, my uncle works in media in Washington. And we were chatting today about ad revenue and how things are looking. He thinks it's going to bounce back. I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, the landscape has been really changed by how advertising has changed, how the nature of it has changed, how choices around the spend are made now. But I think all of that kind of, all of that torment almost, I don't know, that, comes, that sounds kind of dramatic. Um, all of that shaking, that whole earthquake that media went through, really kind of separated the great from the mediocre at the same time that it was decimating these business models. And great media has now kind of separated itself and shown that it's something worth paying for. Uh, with the rise of subscription models or with the return to subscription. Because when you think about it, people were subscribing before. Um, they were just having their subscriptions very, very, very heavily, very heavily, rather, very heavily subsidized by advertising and by the money that that brought in. Mm. And so I think a return to subscriptions is reshaping media or is set to reshape media has already started and it's going to reshape media not just in that separation of the great from the mediocre because no one's going to want to pay for the mediocre um it is also reshaping media in terms of what is healthy and reasonable and sensible and sustainable scale because if you tried to do, I don't know, a business the size of, let's say, BuzzFeed and run it just on subscription fees, even with millions of readers, the subscription would be astronomical. So the scale just does not work for subscription as a revenue stream or subscription as a chief revenue stream that you need to be able to depend on. So I do think it's reshaping scale. I think we are looking at a lot more niche publications, which I think women's media has actually always been good at, just very quietly, because those niches are never really trying to get the attention of the mainstream. Um, I'm really hopeful that subscriptions will change things for media. And I'm also 
really hopeful for a growth in a growth and a change in African media, in how we view it and how we perceive it, um, and in how we value it, and in how we engage with it and how we how we invest in it as well mm. as readers. Um, yeah. I think that's that's the overview, I think. Yeah. Um, you once tweeted or posted, I'm not sure, but you said something around, you know, people are going to have to pay for media. And that's something that I think mm. a lot of people are not really understanding, one, what that means, but two, that that's a reality that has to come, right? So you're talking about the subscription model, which at its bare bones is basically someone subscribing to, say, a, a newsletter, paying a, a monthly subscription or a fee, and then um, getting that content um, on that basis. And that's mm -hmm. very different from, say, a YouTube channel where someone's just sort of putting up content and you don't pay anything and you constantly just consume, consume, consume. And um, mm. I think I, I definitely agree with you, right? The future of media looks like, you know, um, a lot more paid stuff because I'm thinking about some of the, the, the resources I use, so something like Crunchbase, which is really an amazing resource, right, um, that anyone should be using if you if you mm -hmm. care about startups or, you know, entrepreneurship or small business or business in general. And they have a subscription model, right? You can see some data, but they're not going to mm -hmm. show you all of it. And there are sort of newsletters and other platforms where you have to pay to get the best content. And sort of Netflix and um, Spotify and so many other platforms have started to show people that if you actually want the best experience and the best content and the best, um, you know, whatever, you need to pay for it. Um, can you expand more around mm. what you meant by, you know, people are going to have to pay for media? Um, what does that mean to you and how do you think people need to think about that as well? Okay. So let's, <laughs> let's, start. let's start with Facebook and our personal data and how that was really the way that we were paying for that platform for a very long time. And people just didn't know it. And when they knew it, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand what it meant. Um, I think a lot of us now understand the business of collecting data and of leveraging it to target ads and how big that business is, how powerful that business is, how unethical certain corners of that business is. Um, basically, building these things costs resources. Someone is putting in value. Someone is taking the time to build a platform. Someone is taking the time to create quality content. Someone is... Um, coordinating a photographer and a stylist and a celebrity for a shoot. That photographer needs to be paid. That stylist needs to be paid. The writer who does the interview needs to be paid. We have so long had the result in front of us offered to us very freely for the sake of audience size and had the production value of media hidden from us. Um, which it's less hidden now, actually, with the advent of content creators, because so many of them allow people into their process. And you can see that even on their smaller scale, um, a lot of work goes into creating content. 
where work goes in, value goes in, there must be a transaction. Media has not felt like a transaction this entire digital age. Media has just felt like consumption. You just, it's just there and you just consume it. But it has always been a transaction. You've always been giving something up. And now that we are changing the rules so that people can't just give up our personal data um, kind of on our behalf, even though, I don't know, we all signed those end user agreements. You you tick the terms and conditions. Um, there's our data that used to be on the line and it's not so much what's being allowed anymore with the changes in regulation with what we know now about how our data is being used. So there has to be kind of other ways to make money. And my first thought was, well, why can't advertising continue just without abusing our data to do it? And it can continue and it is continuing and it will continue, but it is a lot less effective when it's not kind of invading your personal space to manipulate your interests or to um, really take advantage of stuff that, I don't know, a corporation halfway across the world doesn't really have a right to know about you. We can, we can argue data ethics till the cows come home. Um, but basically, regulating our data, having a healthier relationship with our data on these platforms means that, that ads are going to be less targeted. It means that they're going to be of a little bit less value to the brands that want to put their products in front of us. So advertising doesn't disappear as a revenue stream, but it becomes weaker and it becomes not enough to sustain certain types of platforms anymore. Um, yeah, you were talking about how uh, you were talking about Netflix and Crunchbase and saying that they've got subscription models or I don't know, they've got an upfront transaction. Mm. YouTube has one too, but YouTube basically says you either watch, what is it now? Five ads in this yes. video? It's, it's maybe 10 actually. Or, or you, yeah, maybe <laughs> 10, depending on the length of the video. You either do that and pay for the content this way, or you pay a subscription fee and you pay for the content that way. Spotify is the same. You either use Spotify free and have your music interrupted a million times by ads, or you pay the subscription fee. And I think people are seeing this as so inconvenient because this whole time, this whole digital age, media has just been consumption. But all that's really happening, I think, is that the transaction was hidden. The transaction that used to be hidden is coming up front um, and is becoming more transparent. So you've always paid for media. You have always paid for it somehow. You've always paid for it with your attention. Um, and I think people are waking up to finally, hopefully, because it's been around for a long time, people are finally waking up to the idea of the attention economy and their power as consumers in just what you choose to put your eyes on and what you choose to ignore. Um, and people are also, I think, paying attention to to how certain platforms hook you and want to keep you there and to 
the psychology of these platforms, the psychology of what makes a what makes them stopping content, as they call it, mm. because we're just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. What is the thing that is so cool that you had to stop? Um, people are understanding kind of, I don't know, the strategy that's going into making something a piece of thumb stopping content. Mm. Um, and when I say people, I mean, those of us who work in and around this, I don't know how much of these realizations have really reached the mass consumer yet. I think, I think it, it remains to be seen in some changes in behavior. We'll see how things go. Um, gosh, I feel like I've gone in a circle on this but what i mean when i say that we'll pay for media is that we have already been paying it we've already been paying for it but the price was different. in ways that were hidden mm. yeah the price was different the currency was different and it's now just going to be a much more upfront transaction which is something that people don't want to welcome because it did not feel it wasn't a tangible transaction um, and now it's something that you feel. You can feel money going out of your pocket. You can feel money going out of your account. Um, I think if they understand why, it will be better. I think it'll be better overall for the industry and for the readers and consumers and watchers um, of media. I also think that different media types are maybe going to lean into different things uh, according to the kind of consumer they attract and what really works for that media. For example, advertising is really working for for YouTube. I think it was in February. Was it February this year or was it February last year? It was February this year that Alphabet finally declared how much they make off of ad revenue on YouTube. And it was $15 billion dollars. And I thought at first that I read 15 million and I was like, that's that's way too small. That can't be right. Um, and then reread and saw that it was 15 billion. And this came out around the time that creators on YouTube were really um, angry about changes to the rules that were eating into their income. They were upset about changes to the rules that were making the road to monetization longer and harder for smaller creators, for people who had audiences under 10,000 subscribers. And then it comes out that this is how much they make off of ad revenue. And they're still trying to claw back more from the creators. And I just saw it as kind of, it's not, it's not a complete monopoly that YouTube has on video content, but they can do that because they have almost a complete monopoly on certain types of video content. Mm. And so I saw it as, um, something that they would eventually be challenged on, but it wouldn't. The challenge wasn't going to come from creators who really have no legal standing in YouTube changing the rules. The challenge was going to come from another platform trying to compete for them, and now it has. Because, like I said in February, when I saw that news, we all knew. I think we all knew. I don't think it was any. Um, special insight that I had to say that Instagram TV was going to try to monetize. It just, it just made sense to have invested that much in the platform and then not to try to um, start to run ads on long form video. It just wouldn't make sense, especially when 
Instagram already runs ads on everything else, which is photos and short form videos in terms of stories. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting showdown for my little corner of media, which is fashion. I really do think that IGTV, for all that it lacks as a platform, it's not nearly as robust as YouTube in terms of its capabilities for video. I do think it's going to attract the fashion creators because their audience is already on Instagram. And it's just easier to not have to cross promote and to um, create for two platforms and kind of, I don't know, do the long slog that is YouTube work mm. um, and audience building when you already have an audience that you've built and they're already on this other platform. I think for many others, it's going to be a toss up. I don't think gaming is going anywhere. Gaming's going to sit right where it is, which is YouTube and Twitch. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to look at how these things are going to transform, and then what they mean for how we pay for media as well. Wow. But yeah, I, I think of like just everything you just said, and I think of something like a platform like um, Twitter, where it's not so clear, right? So with them, um, they aren't that good at mining data or sort of using your data against you. Um, so they don't really ask for as much as everyone else does. Is it that they're not good at it or is it a conscious choice that they just don't want to do that? I don't know. Mm. I haven't really been able to tell. It's very interesting. Because it's not like they don't have the tools. Definitely. Um, you recently just made <clears throat> the sort of decision to get off of the platform. Um can you just talk mm -hmm. about, like, how does that sort of affect your thinking around um, spreading or sharing your content and really um, getting people to see the work that you're doing? Because a lot of people sort of justify being on mm. different platforms on the basis of, hey, this allows me to build a community and try and scale the impact of the content that I'm putting out. Um, but, like, I'm starting mm. to start to challenge that as well myself and start going, you know, maybe it's not having all the platforms because the people that you're looking for or you want to engage mm. with might not always be on all the platforms. And also the sort of impact yeah. that certain platforms have on your psyche and just how you feel mm. is starting to become a much bigger mm -hmm. factor. Um, can you just chat a, a, about just the decision around leaving Twitter um, and also how you think about okay. sharing your content um, moving forward and building a community. Okay, so my decision to leave Twitter was very much about my psyche, which was something I was kind of thrown by because um, a lot of the anxiety and mental health uh, challenges that are often associated with use of social media, I have not struggled with those things largely up until now. I think the combination of the past week's events and just the, I don't know, slow descent of <laughs> intellect, of considered opinion, of real completed thought <laughs> on that platform has really diluted my experience of it and I had to kind of ask myself about um, why I was on the platform again because I, I ask myself those kind of questions all the time because I'm just interested in the answers 
Um, I examine myself as a user of all of these platforms as much as I examine anybody else through, I don't know, an article I'm reading about a new study about how we're using this or what we're doing on that platform. Um, and in examining how and why I was on Twitter, I realized that the cons now outweigh the pros, which is always my exit point for anything. When the cons outweigh the pros, I go. Um, I found that Twitter had become for me what I now call static dread, which is kind of like the idea of a threatening crowd. Imagine the noise of a threatening crowd, but as white noise mm. that is just getting louder and louder and louder and louder the more you scroll. Um, that's what Twitter was starting to feel like. Uh, a friend described Twitter as a toilet. I do not disagree. <laughs> um, because there's just um, this weird hive mind going on there. And there's, I don't know, there's, there's, there's viewing something, there's seeing something and reacting to it. There is no consideration. There is not really any reading going on. People just react to a headline. Um, there is the use of the platform as a, I don't know, justified bullying platform, I guess. Um, somebody does something wrong and we use it as an excuse to bring out the worst in ourselves in return. Um, even somebody doesn't have to wait to do, we don't have to wait for someone to do something wrong. I find that the person I am on Twitter is, it's like the bottom quarter of my personality, mm. like the worst 25% of me. And then sometimes, sometimes like I'll squeeze to get that top 25%, um, where I'm having great conversations uh, with people like you, which I'm going to miss, but the cons do outweigh the pros. Mm. <laughs> um, it just, yeah, there was too much personal cost to my thinking, to, I don't know, everything, to my psyche, to my mood, to my ability to think about something and pay attention to it and focus on it for a longer period of time. Um, yeah, it was costing too much. It did give me some things. Um, Twitter is great for your ego if you're a writer. It's excellent. Um, Twitter is also good for certain types of conversations and for connecting with certain types of people. But when I looked at what I was putting into Twitter versus what I was getting out, Twitter doesn't pay me back that much, not really, um, compared to other platforms where there's so much that I do on Twitter that I can also do there. So the competitive advantage is also lost. Um, when I looked at what I get out of Twitter versus Instagram for my career, I really thought Twitter would do more because I'm a writer. I'm not like a super visual fashion producer. Mm. And I'm shocked that Instagram has done way more, way, way more for my career. Um, and I put that down to the fact that that's just where fashion congregates. Fashion is a community on Instagram. I mean, it is a community on Twitter. There's high fashion Twitter and they're a whole thing. I think I'll send you an article on them. They're very interesting 
group of kids. Um, but yeah, Instagram was doing more for me. And so I had to ask myself, why all this cost and not any return? And then with the implosion, I feel, of social media over this past week, it just became too much for me. Yeah. Um, so I decided I was done. I tried to download my data, I think, six or seven times. Um, it finally worked on the seventh one because I've been on Twitter for a decade. It was a lot of data. Um, and I kind of got off of Facebook at the same time, which I'd always been planning to do, but kind of had just put off forever. Um, and yeah, I think that just explains why I left. I, I think over the last sort of two months of lockdown and most people just having, you know, to go online to experience new content and new creators and all of this, um, I've seen sort of Instagram start to become the place where insights is going. Um, so like the, 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 the sort of cost benefit that you're talking about, I can see it possibly being in Instagram's favor, mainly because of that sort of thing where people started going, okay, I need to go video and I need to go live. And people just went straight to their phones and the tool that sort of looked like it was the best option um, was Instagram live. And, I've seen a lot of those conversations be very, very um, intellectual, very, very insights-driven, very much learnings-driven. Mm. Um, so it's really interesting to think that a platform like that, where you're going, okay, I'm sure this is just where people sort of have fun. You always think of Twitter as being the newspaper and sort of um, uh, Instagram being the magazine and mostly visual. I, I came out of that thinking a while ago, though. Mm. Um, I think once I came out of that thinking early because Instagram, at least for the fashion industry, is very much also newspaper. Mm. Um, you are following or I was following very early on when I first got onto Instagram. I realized this thing is going to give me access into the lives of editors and stylists and writers and people I would not otherwise have access to who are halfway across the world in London and New York and other meccas of publishing. And I want to know how they do what they do. And I want to reverse engineer that for myself. I was already doing that through reading their work, which is really how I taught myself to write. I'm not formally trained. Um, but Instagram gave me another look into a day at a magazine that I would probably never be able to work at. Uh, so... For certain industries, I think especially just leaning toward creative industries, Instagram was also kind of something that you could use as a newspaper if you spotted that kind of opportunity. Um, whereas a lot of people, I think just due to the nature of their work or the nature of the communities that they've built on Instagram, that's just not how it works for them. It's just not how it was used. Uh, but then when everybody got online uh, and was just scrolling mindlessly, looking for something to distract themselves from the fact that we are in a global pandemic, uh, a lot of people found themselves just scrolling on Instagram. And I think everyone just kind of realized that, oh, this is where I'm spending all my extra time. If I have any, this is probably where everybody else is spending their extra time. And so it doesn't really matter anymore how 
the platform is perceived, it matters that people are there. And so the conversation moves there, whatever the conversation is. Mm. Mm. It's so interesting. So how do, you, how do you assess sort of the future for African creatives um, using these platforms? Um, obviously, we don't have the scale that sort of the US and Europe have in terms of access for the people that consume the content. But how do you think mm. African creators can start to sort of game the system and find ways to win um, with the climate that exists in terms of the platforms that exist, but also in terms of monetization, which I think is still um, very much in its infancy, not infancy, but it's very early days um, for content creators to be monetizing, especially podcasts. But with everything else, um, it's really interesting to see how people are trying to monetize. But how do you see the future looking um, for African content creators on these platforms? Whether that's Instagram, YouTube, mm. or say the, the media uh, model that you were chatting about earlier, which is sort of newsletters and stuff like that. Hmm. Okay, so newsletters as well, and not just kind of definitely social media and definitely and yeah. Because I think well, I, I think yeah, the newsletters I are think, interesting, um, and you seem very yeah, passionate. about I think about one them. of the things that yes, I'm I'm very much into newsletters now. I've spent the last year reading. I don't know, a scary amount <laughs> about newsletters and their power. And um, yeah, actually, this is something that applies to all content creators. So I'm going to say two things. I'm going to say first, African creators need to look at these platforms as access to the world. I think for, for some, it's going to be something that you really use local to local, and it's going to be something that's really homegrown and home-driven. But I think for many, many others, you're going to have to stop thinking about your immediate surrounds, your community, your country, your culture as the limits of your scale. And I think you've got to think global. There are people whose work allows for that. There are people whose... Um, message and perspective and what it is that they're putting out there about themselves kind of aligns with that and works with that. And I really think that if, if global is possible for you, you should be thinking about how to make that happen, not about how to go to them, but about how to access them using this tool of social media. Um, I think we talk about scale in our market as a challenge and it is, but there are ways that we're still thinking about physical limits that just don't really apply online and don't really apply in the digital realm. So think about your content, think about your message, think about who you want to reach and ask yourself if they can be in another country. Like you don't have to be trying to take over the world, but what if instead of just thinking South Africa, you were thinking South Africa and Kenya? Kenya is very online. What if you're thinking about South Africa and Kenya and Tanzania? What if you're thinking about the whole continent? Or what if you're thinking uh, Africa and Asian subcontinent for whatever it is that you're doing? Think about your market beyond your immediate surrounds because these platforms give you access to anywhere you want if you have the stuff that people there want to connect to. Uh, so that's one thing is that scale is global if you want it to be if your work allows it, if 
different things align. I think it's going to look different for different people. Uh, the other thing is that as you scale, as you invest, as you create all of this content, please remember that you don't own these platforms. <laughs> please remember that Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, whoever they are, they can change the rules on you in a way that decimates your content. Publishers know this well, especially um, publishers of the written word, because when Facebook changed the rules, they suddenly had to pay to reach people they had already worked to connect with organically. It, it screwed with so much when <laughs> Facebook changed the rules, when Facebook lied about the video numbers, which really... Yeah, let's let's not talk about me and Facebook. <laughs> um, but yeah, just remember that you don't own these platforms. And one way to connect with your audience and make your audience a tangible asset outside of a of an Instagram account of a YouTube channel is an email list. You own your email list. You can take it with you wherever you go, and that is one of the many powers of a newsletter. Um, doesn't have to be a newsletter. I mean, plenty of creators start their own stores off of whatever their offering is, whether it's fashion or beauty or um, whatever it is that you offer people. People parlay that into services and product, and they create stores that don't live on these platforms, although they could now. Um, thank you, Facebook and Instagram shop. Um, and those are other ways that people collect email accounts and connect, collect a profile of a customer and collect a profile of a fan or a reader or a follower. And when you have that profile, that's a tangible asset. That data file is a tangible asset that you can take with you anywhere and doesn't belong to the platform. Mm -hmm. And I really think it's something that creators need to be thinking about um, in terms of going beyond understanding the value that you create to understanding the value that you own. You really need to be owning your stuff, <laughs> um, which is something that I think, I don't know, people have told Africans, we've told each other in, I think, a number of different ways, but it's become real for me in this iteration of the newsletter. Um, what else is there to say about African creatives? I think leverage this time, which aside, even aside from um, the events of the past week and the conversation happening right now around blackness, there was already an interest in African ingenuity and African originality and innovation and creativity and we need to own the narrative, yes, which is, I think, something that those of us working in media on these platforms should really take up as a responsibility. But we also need to own all of this, I don't know, creative capital as a tangible asset that is ours and is not leaving this continent and is pouring money in and is not kind of just making money for these platforms that don't belong to us, that aren't African built, that 
are, I mean, sure, creating some jobs here, but there are jobs that are, at the end of the day, generating income for somewhere else. I think, think about the ecosystem that you are part of by being a creator on any of these platforms. And think about the role that you have if you participate passively and the role that you can have if you participate proactively and strategically and decide what you want to do. I think it's a lot of thinking for some people. It's not really what they got into the game for. Um, but if you see this being something that you can really turn into a career, that you can turn into value for somebody else, that you can turn into a business, then I think that these are things you need to be thinking about. Hello, did you get that? Hey, yes. <laughs> sorry. It, okay. Sometimes it just jumps off. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I think I lost you for a second. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's that one. Cool. I have to edit this part out as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think I'm just going to do an intro quickly. Outro quickly. Um, and then, yeah. But cool. Um, thank you so much. Um, just not just that final answer, but I've really learned a lot um, throughout just this experience of just speaking to you and learning from you. I really hope a lot more people learn um, a lot from you as well. Just, I think this podcast was really great in terms of just what you had to share around media, um, fashion, social media platforms, but also the monetization of content and how content creators can sort of navigate the time that we exist in now. So thank you so much for your time and really, really appreciate you and really wishing um, all the best for you um, in the future. Um, could you please just like share where people can actually find the work that you're doing and where else they can follow you because it's not going to be Twitter. <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to be Twitter. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I think this has been a really good conversation. I hope it's been helpful to somebody listening. Um, but it's also been really kind of tailored not just to the questions you ask, but tailored to my experiences and tailored to the questions and um, conversations I'm having with myself and questions I'm asking myself and things that I'm observing right now. I have plenty more to say about platforms, I think. So please do reach out. Uh, I unfortunately have a very, <laughs> a very long name. Um, my website is modupayolaurentobad.com. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do you the favor of not spelling that out and just say that you can find me on Instagram at driving Miss Dupsy and you can hit my link in bio to find pretty much everything there. You'll find my portfolio website. You'll find, uh, some of my latest work right now. It's all, um, links to resources and donations. Uh, but I will, I guess, start to restore some of my other links soon. Mm. Um, yeah, please do reach out. I answer DMs, not weird ones, but I do answer DMs. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. I am focusing, I think, kind of on Instagram and LinkedIn going forward. Um, yeah, another reason that I left Twitter was because Twitter is so public facing. And I am kind of veering away from consumer-facing work. I'm actually trying to move toward industry-facing work. 
it just that was another reason it made sense just mm. as an added point um yeah so from my handle driving with dipsy which is driving ms d-u-p-s-i-e um yeah hit me up and i'd love to chat if you are building something cool um i'd love to talk if you are in fashion and intimidated by these platforms and intimidated by these spaces um yeah let's talk cool thank you so much thank you